God's Word. Beloved, now please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We'll continue in our preaching series on the Gospel of Matthew. If you're visiting, uh, this is our this is our mode of operation. We we select a Bible uh, book and we uh, read through it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We read it carefully, we explain it, hopefully carefully again, drawing out as much as we can of what the Lord is saying to us. Uh, and then, by God's grace, we hope to make sense how this applies in your life. And that's the, the nature of the, the, the preaching, the sermon task. Let's turn then to our scriptures. Matthew 19, our text will be verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Thus far reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Well, of it all flesh is this grass and its beauty as the flower of the field, the grass withers, and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. This is the word that was just read to you by his good help that will be preached. Please be seated. In approaching this subject, I, I, I need to, uh, I think I, should, I need to issue a disclaimer. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the purpose of this passage and the Lord's teaching is not that anyone should be so broken up and convicted onto the point of grief and despair. And the gospel is good news, uh, and uh, it's meant to be building up the people of God and not destroying anyone. Uh, so uh, you'll have to be very patient as we get to the, 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 the back end of the sermon before I give you some hope of light because we need to be first of all sure of the teaching and this teaching will particularly have some sting to it. And the reason why is that we live in an age and I grew up in an age and that's in the 60s I grew up in an age of sexual revolution uh, where everything became permissible and uh, many of the, of the standards of Christianity just were, were set aside, ignored redefined. And we're still in this social experiment today, and it's continuing to accelerate. People are, are finding very unusual identities. And in doing so, they, they are, are really setting aside the original intent in God's creation for marriage, for human sexuality. And so we are prone, my friends, to not only dread this kind of teaching when we're confronted in the church and the pulpit by it, but we, we tend to despair. But we must never despair. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, yeah, they're very heinous. They're very heinous sin, and I'll speak to that very, very pointedly. But it's not an unforgivable sin. There is recovery from a bad marriage, from divorce, and even if you've made the mistake of remarrying improperly. Now, I, I say this first because I don't want anyone to be so shaken up as to lose the rest of the sermon. So be assured, 
if you're here and if your heart's the Lord's, it's because the Lord has forgiven whatever sin, whatever compromise, what, what, whatever transgression, after all, transgression is where you see the law of God, you see it, and here's the line, and you say, okay, and you break through. You just smash through the guardrails of God's law, and you deliberately defile yourselves in sexual impurity. But that's just transgression. And that's what we do as sinners. We sin, we transgress. We miss terribly. But that's not to say that we are hopeless. I just wanted to give you that disclaimer. Uh, but we, we must establish what the Lord has for us as his original intent for us in marriage. Uh, because it's not, as so many philosophers uh, would have us to believe, it's not something of a human contrivance where we... Uh, arrived at this institution for economic reasons or for emotional, psychological reasons. No, all of this, yeah, there are many, many benefits. But the Lord had his purpose and marriage. And we must get back to that in honor of the Creator. Now, the context here is very important. First of all, I will mention the geography change. And this is because... Uh, the Lord had been teaching his disciples more closely uh, in the northern regions of Galilee. Uh, he was teaching them things of the kingdom and the administration of it, and especially in Matthew 18 when things go south in the church and how they would be able to ha handle it in his absence because he was headed to the cross, he was headed to die, he was headed to be raised, and he was headed for his ascension, and he would rule from heaven by his spirit and word. And word. Uh, but he would not be physically with them. And so he was teaching his disciples, leaving the north country, he goes back into Judea and across the Jordan, and that's where he is. And so he's now gone from a more public and more intensive uh, and particular teaching on forgiveness, on dealing with sin, on restoration, reconciliation, and now he's back in public teaching. And so that is to say, it's very important now that we are leave Matthew 18 with its teaching of sin and recovering from sin and forgiving offenders uh, upon their repentance. And it seems to me in the Holy Spirit, he's given us, yes, a chapter break in Matthew 19 because of the geographic change. And those of you who like uh, to develop uh, scripture uh, teachings for yourselves, know that when uh, a geography change occurs, there's usually a break in the narrative. But it's a soft break, because we're still talking about a special case of sin. We're talking about a special case of sin, not only in the church, but throughout all mankind, uh, because marriage is a, is a universal institution. But this special case needs to be treated a little bit differently. Uh, because whereas in normal relationship, when you have 70 times 7 uh, for forgiveness, uh, that, of course, would, uh, would be the norm, or to be very patient with one another, uh, even, even in sins that greatly offend us. However, in marriage, we, we now transgress a covenant. When we're not faithful to our marriage vows, to our spouse, at marriage, we break through a sacred arrangement. It's not just any old sin. Uh, even Paul alludes to this in his Corinthian epistles when he says that when we, when we join ourselves to a prostitute, then we become one with her, you see. We defile ourselves in a manner that no other sin touches. So it's a, it's a distinctive uh, teaching, and it does involve and brush upon the uh, the teaching of reconciliation and forgiveness, but on an exceptional basis. Let me, that's my introduction, very, very long introduction. The teaching here is this, that God originally intended marriage to last until the death of the spouse. That's, that's the original intent, very simple. Um, divorce is permitted only because of infidelity, and the reason is for that permission was a hardness of heart. Uh, but we'll, we'll see here what this means, the hardness of heart. It's, it's one of our primary concerns 
that we preserve our marriage by keeping our hearts pure before the Lord and not allowing hardness of heart and bitterness to set in. That's our main, that's our main focus on this. All right, three points. The first point is that we'll see that multitudes follow Jesus, but the, the people were following Jesus for various different reasons. Some followed because Jesus proclaimed a, a wonderful vision of, for the future, the kingdom of God, the restoration of all things, righteousness dwelling. Uh, and he is, after all, the foremost teacher in Israel. And this is a very good reason why people should be following. Uh, it's a very good reason why people should even temporarily drop aside their work, their schooling, and follow to learn of the great prophet. And he was the great prophet that was anticipated and promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And the people knew the peculiar strength and the peculiar light that he brought by his words. And they confessed, no man, no man ever has ever spoken like this man, Jesus of Nazareth. What Jesus was doing was he was restoring the law of God uh, to Israel in its purity. He's, he, he told us in the Sermon on the Mount that he was not setting aside the law. No, that, you, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. His kingdom would be one of righteousness. The scepter of righteousness is his throne. And all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were according to that truth. He was, re he was restoring it by refuting and by condemning wrong thinking, wrong teaching, unbiblical uh, teachings, teaching that really did not accord, it did not harmonize with the rest of Scripture. Uh, it clashed. And as it were, uh, any deviation from what the Scripture says is prone to lead us in a direction that is not good, that is not pure, that is not true. And it will lead us into sin. That's why Jesus... Uh, is restoring uh, the law of God to its its bright luster. And what, the, the way he's doing this is by restoring the primacy of Scripture. That is to say, the importance of getting back to the Scriptures. His methodology is always to ask the question, what does the Scripture say? And pointing them back to the Word of God, the sure foundation. And uh, uh, lest the uh, accretions, those things that were added by so many teachers and rabbis and commentaries and commentaries on commentaries, and then to the nth power commentary. Well, that was the interest in the Great Reformation of the 16th and 17th century in Europe. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, you know, uh, please uh, let us know. We'll put you uh, in some, uh, we'll have some good materials that will explain the interest that the church took in the 16th and 17th century to get rid of a lot of baggage that was really weighing the church down, leading them in a wrong direction, and restoring it back to the direction that would follow the Lord Jesus fully. And one of the things he does in this way, in his method, is by uh, interpreting the scriptures according to its original intent. Now God has revealed not only his teaching and his law for us, but as also his intentions and uh, in why he commands us what he does. He doesn't always give us reasons why, or he doesn't always give us a reason why then and there, maybe some other place in Scripture. But he wants us to know that the original intent uh, may be known by God, and that is to govern whatever he sets forth in us and for us in his church and in the world until the end of the ages. In other words, the, the three primary institutions that the Lord, uh, in, by creation, uh, sets down for us plainly is uh, marriage and work and Sabbath. Marriage and Sabbath, unfortunately, are under attack and have been since the latter part of the 19th century. Increasingly so. And you wonder why nations are falling apart and the world is given to chaos. And because if the three founding institutions created for man and given to man graciously by God for ordering the church and for the strength of his body and soul are neglected, well, 
No wonder the, no wonder the world is in chaos. The method is to go back to the original intent. Now the Lord is not only a teacher, but he affirms that teaching is good because he is the healer. He takes little people out of, ex, uh, um, out of their bondage in Israel. And as we'll say, see in a, a, a preaching in the near future, he leads them. And he brings them sometimes to bitter waters, but then if he leads them to bitter waters, he cures them. And he makes the waters drinkable, and then he leads them again to another oasis, Elam, seven springs and 70 palms, a, a foretaste of the good. He's a great healer, and our souls know it, and they, they delight in It's easy to delight in Jesus of Galilee. He's so good. And this is a great reason why multitudes would follow Jesus. He is presented in the Gospel of Matthew as the king. And he is this king that is subduing demons. And he's subduing illnesses. And he's countermanding miseries. And, and everywhere he goes... Uh, peace and righteousness follow. Where there was confusion, there's clarity, there's leadership, there's strength. That's the Lord Jesus, a great healer and a great king. And that's why people ask the question, could this be, could this be the son of David? And so they had political hopes for their nation, the hopes of the realization of the promises to Israel. And, of course, liberation from Rome, which Israel and Judea was a, a vassal state. Uh, to the Romans at this time. Very humiliating that the sons of God would be subdued by, uh, by pagans. Multitudes follow Jesus, but for different reasons. And here we see in this narrative, some uh, followed him very closely, and they observed him very, very closely because Jesus was a threat. Oh, yes. Jesus was turning the world upside down. And uh, a lot of people became very angry. He was a threat to the religious establishment. Um, I just think about it. I mean, look, look what happened after Pentecost and an establishment of the, of the New Testament church. I mean, <laughs> all, all those priests <laughs> serving the temple, the Levites, and they, they were all outsourced. You don't need priests when there's no temple. There's no more sacrifice. That's just one example of the tumult that his kingdom would bring to the religious establishment for any number of reasons, but then to hypocrites of every kind for every kind of reason. Because the, the religion that Jesus was preaching was a, was a heart religion. He realized that the trouble began in the very core of a man's existence. And, and so in this preaching, what we're going to see is, because so many of us have falsely identified our identity, in, in our sexual preferences or by sexual ex expression, our body, ourselves, that type of thing, because we've become so confused that we will tend to squirm with regard to anything that touches human sexuality. And this teaching of marriage, divorce, and remarriage does touch on human sexuality. It is a great, great uh, correction and a redirection that not only the world needs, but the church needs at this time. Many people followed him for many good reasons, and some, like these, that were watching him as a threat, that was a bad reason. But here's another bad reason. These Pharisees, they, they followed him to test him, to, to, to try him, to, to even publicly shame him by bringing up sticky questions, controversial questions, maybe best handled in, an, in a room somewhere. They didn't have to teach asking this in public. Um, but note also the way that, the Jesus, that Jesus asks this. It's a, it's a questioning back and forth. It's very polite. They're asking questions. They're not, they're not coming to him uh, with their minds made up. Of course, they were made up, but they didn't want to acknowledge that because that would be shameful. Nobody does that to a teacher in Israel. It's just shameful when students assume they know more of their teachers. <laughs> but we find that a very common sin. Authority, along with sexuality, is a problem. No time to address that here this morning. The question they came up with is in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce? Is it permitted then to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's, that's the question. Is it permitted? 
And then uh, by, by, uh, by addressing him in this, in this a peculiar question, they're attempting to marginalize Jesus as less than orthodox. But you see, there's multitudes following Jesus, but for different reasons. And you may be following Jesus for any number of reasons. There are very good reasons. Yeah, he, he introduces the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. Uh, and, and with that righteousness and truth and love and peace. He is, he is your healer. He is your, your soul's healer. He subdues demons. He, he, is, he is able to, to save to the uttermost, both in this world and the age to come. But if you're after the Lord Jesus for health, wealth, knowledge, if you're posturing, if you just want to cause trouble in the church or in the kingdom, then you need to examine your heart before the Lord because there are good reasons to follow the Lord. And the best reason to follow the Lord is because he is that, because he's Lord. The second point of the sermon is that Jesus reformed the Jews' approach to Scripture. He led them back to Holy Scripture as the only rule for all of their questions. If you need to answer something, you need to go back to Scripture and read what it says, and then uh, your, your policy or your principle or, or, or your interpretation must be that which is written or can be derived by good and necessary consequences. Uh, you can use your brain here. You're not, you're not crucifying your brain, folks. Uh, you are to be reasonable creatures, and God crowns us with reason, most distinguished among others, because we are able to take his word and receive it, and, and to truly understand it as it is given, and then synthesize how to apply it in peculiar circumstances, not just 2,000 years ago in, in Galilee and in Judea, but in today. He led them back to Holy Scripture. Uh, Jesus himself was a Jew, and though he was the eternal son of God as Christ, he was not above Holy Scripture, but he submitted to Scripture in all things. But the problem is that the rabbinic tradition, these various, uh, what I call accretions, add-ons, had replaced much biblical teaching, even core biblical teaching, fundamental biblical teaching. And so the Lord Jesus reformed the Jews' approach to Scripture by publicly rebuking them. And here's how he did it. It may, it may it's a little subtle here, <laughs> but let me show you something. The scribes, as they were brought forth, especially after Ezra, the scribe in the Old Testament, these Pharisees were scribes, and they, they were primarily public readers and public teachers. They, they were the ones who really owned the scriptures. Many of them had their own copies of the, of the scriptures. That's a very expensive thing. They were wealthy and they owned scrolls of scriptures. And here's a little something that Jesus offers them here in this narrative. In verse 4, he offers them, a, 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 this is a sting. And the, the Lord Jesus is meek, but he's got, he's got some, some, some sting here. He says, have you not read? <laughs> have you not read? Well, that's all they've been doing all their lives is reading. But they have not been reading well enough. They had not been reading with understanding. They had not been reading in the light of God's truth. They had read but not understood yet. Why? Okay. Then we need to ask ourselves, why is it that these people are owning in the Bible of the Old Testament? They're just not, they're not getting it together. But Jesus begins immediately to argue the original intent of the Bible's teaching regarding marriage in the beginning. See, he who created them from the beginning, he says in verse 4, made them male and female, and therefore the consequences is that, again in Scripture from Genesis 2, verses 21 and 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage was instituted by God. God created all things. And God creates one flesh of two. Marriage, if you've seen me perform it here, is a new creation. Something was here is here on earth now that was not here before. This is a new thing. It's a, it's a family. It's a marriage. Marriage then was easy. In the garden, before sin, 
It was all good because Adam was good and Eve was good. This is a foundational institution in all uh, human society. And if you think about it, there's not a, a word about divorce for the first 2,500 years of human existence. The first 2,500 years of human history, nothing in Scripture about divorce. And so we need to read and we need to understand our Bible as to what the Lord is doing and because even much acquaintance with the Bible does not guarantee our understanding. Every time we open our scriptures, we ought to be in prayer. Every time uh, we read, we should, we should check our hearts and ask for God's light and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And other books may help, but there are no substitute for knowing the Word of God. That was the problem with the rabbis. Too many, too many books, right? That's the reason I, one of the reasons I keep buying books is that I haven't found anything better than the Bible. I keep trying to find something. Nothing, nothing suits. But some of them are helpful. Some of, some of them are helpful to understand the Bible. Jesus then reformed the Jews' approach to Scripture. But then the third point here, and the last point of the sermon, is that Jesus teaches, and teaches God's will regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This is the primary teaching of the day. This is what he's teaching here. Re regarding marriage, the original intent of God is for marriage to endure. Uh, because, honestly, Adam and Eve would have endured had they not sinned. And they would have remained married. And they had lived forever. Uh, the original intent is for marriage to endure forever because there was no sin, no death before sin, or until death after the fall of Adam. And uh, later in heaven, there, there is no marriage except that one which is between Christ and this church. It's to be between one man and one uh, a woman. So God instituted marriage, and the original intent is for them to cleave and not separate. That's repeated various times in the Old Testament. God brings a man and a woman together in marriage, and he's blessing them. A man is not commanded to marry, but once married, he must not undo the work of God. Um, I'm going to, Susie, I'm going to take a small break here. If you would just play a hymn, and uh, I'll get back in just a minute. Thank you. Thank you for your indulgence. I'm perfectly fine. 
So God instituted marriage, and uh, the original intent is that man and woman would cleave, cling, bind, strong glue, not, not separate. Uh, we read in the Genesis narrative, the reason that God separated himself from man yeah. is because of sin. Sin brings about separation. That's how you know that there's been sin. One of the key marks of sin is its power to separate. But God brings a man and a woman together in marriage just as he brought Adam and Eve together to himself because he wants that closeness between himself and the creature. A man is not commanded to marry, but once married, he must not undo the work of God. God hates he hates divorce, Malachi 2 and verse 14. Now, regarding divorce, divorce only came after the fall of man into sin. And so all divorce involves some sin in the background. There, there, there is grievous sin so as to bust up a relationship, and not just a casual relationship, the closest intimacy that is to be found among creatures. And in the church, of course, the closest intimacy that has been brought about by vows, holy, solemn vows. And a vow is a very serious thing because the vow, you're asking the Lord to judge you if you, not, if you do not make good on what you are promising. It's not just a, it's just not, it's not just a promise. You're hanging your soul on a vow. That's what you're doing. Moses then regulates. He doesn't command divorce. No, he's regulating divorce. Uh, and this is, uh, again, now we're creeping up here on, on what the error of the Pharisees was. God, speaking through Moses, permitted. He permitted divorce for some reason and cause. He didn't command it. Now, there's nothing virtuous and there's nothing holy and there's, there's nothing Christian about divorcing your wife. You're not pleasing God by divorcing your wife necessarily. He allows it. He allows this divorce. And he allows it back in the Old Testament because of the hardness of heart of his people. That is to say, if his people were holy, if they were consecrated, if they were, would be walking humbly and justly with their God, loving mercy, then they would not find themselves in this predicament. But the people's heart was hard, and they, they would take the words of the prophets and they would throw them behind them, just forget what God was teaching. It's a dangerous spiritual condition, and it's not normal for God's people to be hard-hearted. It's common, but it's not normal. It's a dread spiritual condition. And these are people that are publicly covenanted, that are circumcised, that are going and attending the festivals three times a year, that are, that are offering prayers to God. And they are religiously in synagogue week by week. I say these things because much of the piety of the Christian church today is lost. And, and even in their nonconformity to the spiritual law of God and their hard-heartedness, these Jews are much better than a lot of Christians in America today who don't even do an external conformity to what God is requiring to, them to do in his church. Everything's just all loose. But that looseness comes up because there's a real heart problem here. Oh, they think they're saved. Somebody told them they were saved. But Sir Pharisees made divorce an easy procedure. And again, the interpretation is wrong. The seventh commandment is a negative prohibition. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's always wrong. It's always wrong to commit adultery. That's, that's the structure of a negative commandment. Thou shalt not. The Pharisees turned it around and made it a positive commandment, commanding divorce. God, you know, did, did Moses command? Is it lawful? You see, my friends, a, a, weakened spiritual, a weakened spiritual condition will have you do any number of unusual things with God's text. You'll be flipping things 180 degrees 
White becomes dark, dark becomes black, white, whatever. If you're in hardness of heart, you're in a position of grave danger. You're not growing, you're dying. And if, and if you're not growing, you're, you're showing yourself to be not in that vine, which, which has the Holy Spirit and the, the, the life of Christ in it. Christ is the vine. And if you're in the vine, you'll be fruitful. But no, no hard-hearted believer can be fruitful. God does not then allow this separation in a marriage, except for one exception, and it's here in this text. The Greek word used here as an exception is the word parneia, and it's, this is grounds for divorce, for separation. Uh, it relates to uh, uh, one, of the, one of the partners in a marriage to violate their vow um, sexually with a person outside of that arrangement, and that's what it is. That, that, is, por- that is porneia. It's uncleanness. The, the, it does, that word doesn't mean much to us today. If you know your Old Testament, it's a dread thing for the Jew. It, it means they're just not suitable, and they're not to be found in the assembly. Uh, nothing unclean can come into the house of God. It, it, is, a, it is a portent of, of hell, because it, it is sin. It, 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 this is condemned very, very neatly in the Seventh Commandment. And with this commandment, is the threat of capital punishment. Uh, not, every com- not every commandment uh, uh, is, has the threat of a, of a capital offense. That is to say, one that's punishable by death. The penal sanction here uh, is, to the fullest extent of the law, is execution for adulterers. All right? Although now in Israel, of course, it was rarely enacted from what I read of the history books, but it's there as a possibility. Now, uh, the scriptures also speak in other places, not in this passage, of other reasons for divorce. Uh, but I'm not going to teach a full treatise on divorce, marriage, and remarriage, uh, remarriage here. It, it deserves further study on all your parts if you're not well, very well acquainted. Um, but desertion or abandonment is also grounds for divorce. But there's physical abandonment where someone just leaves the keys of the house and just drives away in the car and says, I'm through, goodbye, you're not going to hear from me. So he's abandoned the home, his spouse or her spouse, the children. Uh, and uh, there is a physical, uh, there's physical desertion when the, when the couple is no longer expressing themselves in love conjugally. That's to say, in marriage, they're not, they're not honoring their, their bed. Uh, there's also emotional desertion, where much cruelty, uh, much cruelty is expressed, and reviling of one's partner, and hateful words, and continual war, such that love it becomes impossible. And all there is is bitterness, and wrath, and anger. And that's also a form of desertion. There are many scriptures. If you want my, my sermon notes, they're all there, but you, you'll have to go ahead and, and spend, spend time yourself there. Now, so we, we, Jesus has touched on marriage, the biblical law and its original intent. He's touched on divorce, especially the one case permitted, porneia. And now he speaks of remarriage. And the teaching that Jesus here says is that uh, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. A divorced guilty party, not, not every divorced person, there are innocent persons who are divorced, but a divorced guilty may not remarry, and that's Jesus' teaching. And that commandment is absolute, because it's a negative commandment. It's never right to remarry after divorce if you're the guilty party. Never. The second is that divorced innocent party. The divorced innocent party uh, may remarry because uh, they are not guilty and they're the innocent one and the spouse is as dead. Of course, under a capital punishment or penal sanction, of course they would be dead. That person could remarry. So you'll remember the teaching that way. 
The church judges whether this sin, the nature of it, the extent of it, the church will watch for repentance, reconciliation. Just that why I say the chapter break is unfortunate. It's a continuation of Matthew 18. Or a, or a writ of divorce with a, you know, a letter permitting the innocent party to, to remarry and stating the fact that the one was guilty and should not. That, again, despite the geological or geographic change in the location, the Holy Spirit continues the narrative of repentance, reconciliation, and righteousness. Anyone marrying a divorced guilty person commits not porneia, no, not uncleanness or fornication, but morkaya, and that is adultery, and that is a more grievous, that's actually more grievous. Anyone marrying a divorced guilty person commits adultery, it's commonly excused today, even churches, by saying, well, you know what, God forgives sin. And, and of course, if this church here, Covenant Presbyterian Church, teaches this way, well, you know, there's another church, I'm sure there's another church within half a mile here somewhere that'll teach differently. In other words, consumerism will just rot the churches and its corruption from the inside. And, but this, my friends, is, is, is skipping over the main problem. The main problem is that we have not understood the commandments. It's because it, the main problem here is that we do not understand commandments because our hearts are hard and we're bent on the lusts of our own flesh. We must have things our way, and if we don't have our things our own way, then we will arrange some other arrangement. Hardness of heart. But what I need to remind you of, my, of my friends, is this, and you followed along my teaching, if this is indeed the teaching of Scripture, you need to be warned, because this is a very, very common sin in Israel. Very common among God's people in Israel. And it is very common from, I gather, today, if I can judge. But God's not mocked. And if people continue to sin presumptuously regarding marriage and remarriage, then the Lord, the Lord will take care of cleaning his own house. He's not going to defile his holy sanctuary. His temple is holy and God's holy and everything in it is holy. And he's just not going to allow this. Sooner or later, he's going to take out his winnowing fork and thrush the wheat. And there goes the chaff into the wind. The wheat is kept and is stored in the barn. But he will make a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous in his church. He certainly will. Now, my friends, I am not overstating the case here. This is a hard saying because of the hardness of our hearts. And the disciples themselves see very plainly that this teaching of Jesus is going to be a difficult teaching. And that's why they say in the coming preaching, Lord willing, if I'm still here next week, he says, well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this sort of thing? It is a hard teaching. And you have to enter into marriage soberly. And you better conduct yourselves in your marriage very soberly. Because God is not mocked. And the problem is not that you had a bad marriage. The problem is that something went wrong with somebody's heart in that marriage. And this is the, the result. Let me bring this teaching to a conclusion. The Bible always has taught that God originally intended marriage to last until the death of a spouse. Divorce is permitted only because of infidelity and hardness of heart. The adultery is condemned in the seventh commandment, and all adulterers are barred from heaven. All adulterers are barred from heaven. This commandment is commonly misunderstood, ignored, or compromised, but it must be kept. It must be kept by God's people. God is Lord. Now, my friends, the best way... To enter a marriage is to know Christ's teaching about marriage. In this church, its elders, a session, we, re we require instruction before marriage through counseling because every disciple needs to count the cost in whatever vocation they follow to please the Lord. But especially do you keep short accounts with God in your daily walk and short accounts with your wife. If you have injured one another, you... 
Don't let your anger, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Deal with things quickly. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, There's just no secrets to a good marriage. It's all prescribed by our teacher, the Lord Jesus. Also, don't, don't, don't stay long in any church that will not keep the teaching purely. I say this because adultery and fornication multiply whoredom. And it draws, it's like a lightning, a lightning rod for God's wrath on a church and on a nation. Just like blood pollutes the ground. Fornication and adultery, the whoredom is also defiling. And whether you yourself are innocent, you will go down with the ship. When the ship is sinking, the nation is judged and everyone hurts. We need to be very careful about how we are promoting this looseness by the things that we buy, the things that we watch, the things that we read, the things that we say. Keep yourselves clean and away from defilement. Again, don't you enter into temptation. Don't you tempt God by dating adulterers and fornicators. Oh, no, God is strong and uh, I'm not going to witness to them. Be careful. And if you are a divorced person and you were guilty, then we have a section of Scripture coming up to you about your, your recourse. You are to remain chaste. You are to remain celibate and not marry. Do not enter into temptation by dating or by being, befriending closely adulterers, fornicators, or other people. If you disobeyed this teaching and, uh, and married, and you find yourself, well, I've made these mistakes. I've made... This preaching has absolutely caused me great, great pain because I have highly displeased God. And I'm, am I still subject to wrath? If you have made the mistake of marrying without biblical warrant, if you have disobeyed God in Christ, and you have married a divorced person who was divorced in the guilt, then, my friends, your life is not over, and there's more than enough hope. God saves adulterers, fornicators, liars, thieves, drunkards. Some of you were such as that, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of God. And so that's what God does in Christ. He saves sinners. But we need to make sure that we understand our responsibility here to keep chaste, especially once we are named in Christ. There's no reason why we should despair. There's no reason why we should hang our head. Again, I don't promote anyone forgetting their past sins. What I I ask you to do is to hold them up to your own view and thank God that you are trusting him for complete deliverance that he has already forgiven you. If you're here and attending these words, though you have sinned mightily in this area before, it's proof already that God has forgiven you because he's opened your eyes and your ears and he's still dealing with you. Otherwise, he wouldn't deal with you. He does not deal with just anybody. He only deals with those that have communion with him in Christ. And he's drawing you by his Holy Spirit into greater and greater holiness. And so there's really no reason at all why you should be in despair. You are already acceptable to God in Christ because of his righteousness, because of his sanctity, and because of his purity. And because God is pure and Christ is pure, then you who are in Christ are regarded as pure. That's that's the teaching of imputation. But yet, don't tempt God and don't mock him for his goodness to us by sinning presumptuously. But you will walk humbly with your God. You will walk penitently with your God, rejoicing in his goodness, exalting in the righteousness that is yours by the free forgiveness of your sins, even heinous sins. Heinous sins that have brought down cities and peoples and empires. And you, yet you are released from the, from the, from the, the trap, the, the net, the snare, and you are safe. The gospel is for sinners. What the Pharisees do with the law is to contrive a religion where men may excuse themselves from sin. And if you haven't understood yet, the preaching of this pulpit 
will hopefully by God's grace will always use the law to convince you of sin. Because the greater sin that you own, the greater you will love the Savior for relieving you of that great debt. And that, my friends, is heart religion, pure and acceptable to God in Christ. So love him, obey him, in gratitude for all that he's done for you. And if you've recovered from this kind of sin, then strengthen your brothers, as Peter did. Peter grieved terribly by denying his Lord. His Lord, Jesus told him, after you have recovered, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen those that they also in this generation can learn to be pure and right and good. <sighs> Lest the Lord turn and be angry and we, we see something terrible. And he's done that before. Believe on the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ did not shrink back from delivering the whole truth. He spoke to sinners in their right condition, but he offered us hope. We thank you that there is cleansing. But we thank you, Lord, that the intent is that we should honor you and your institutions, especially in marriage and in chastity and cleanliness. And, uh, Lord, that we would honor our vows just as you are faithful to honor your vows with us and that we are wedded to Christ and we must be sanctified and we must, we must present our bodies pure to our Lord as, a, as an unblemished spouse of church. Lord, convince us of these things. Convince the nations of these things, of the dread, dread harm that comes to all peoples by defilement and whoredom. And we pray, Lord, that by all means we would exalt your truth, that you'd be glorified in it as the Savior of sinners and the sanctifier of sinners and the lover of our souls and bodies. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Let's have an offering, please.